morning, everybody. It is a good Sunday to be joining us, especially if you're here for the first time or first time in a while, because we are starting a brand new series today. It's going to take us all the way through the fall called How Faith Works. And for this series, uh, we're going to be walking through the book of James. James is uh, largely considered to be the most practical book in the, uh, the New Testament, if not in the entire Bible. And what James does verse after verse, passage after passage, is show us how a relationship with Jesus Christ applies to all of these everyday situations and circumstances that we're going to find ourselves in all throughout our lives. And so um, throughout this series, we're going we're gonna to talk about things like how to handle trials, uh, how to grow individually and spiritually, how to treat people with both justice and mercy, how to get better at relationships, how to stop worrying, how to deal with materialism, all that kind of stuff that we all deal with all throughout our lives. And so today on the front of this series, I would like to cordially invite you over the next 12 weeks to let the book of James tell you how faith works. We should have called this series that. I wish we, oh my God, it's right there. It's amazing. All right. We're going to read James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. It's a large uh, section of scripture, uh, but we're going to be all, uh, we're going to be all up in it this morning. So James 1, verses 1 through 18 says, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Consider it a great joy, my brothers, when, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. An indecisive man is unstable in all his ways." The brother of humble circumstances should boast in his exaltation, but the one who's rich should boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and dries up the grass. Its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will wither away while pursuing his activities. A man who endures trials is blessed, because when he passes the test, he'll receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, for God is not tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dearly loved brothers. Every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, With him, there is no variation or shadow cast by turning. By his own choice, he gave us a new birth by the message of truth so that we would be the first fruits of his creatures. This is God's word. This is a a real large block of text that we're dealing with. It's got a lot of moving parts, and we could, if we wanted to, spend five or six weeks in just these verses alone. Uh, But the reason that we're covering all of this in one week is because, despite all the moving parts, this passage really has one main topic, and that topic is trials. And the fact that James gets to this topic as quickly and seemingly abruptly as he does tells us that evidently um, this was a topic of extreme importance 
for the people who were the original recipients of this letter. But as, as important as this topic was for people some 2,000 years ago receiving this letter for the first time, I believe that if anything, this is even more important for you and I today. And the reason I say this, and this is a bold statement to make, but just hang on. The reason I say the topic of trials, if anything, is more important for us today even than it was for people 2,000 years ago is because there has never been a society in human history more unprepared for trials than the society that you and I live in now. And the reason I say that, and I'll walk through that because I know that's a statement that, you know, you should require me to back up. I think that's fair. But the reason I say that is because you and I are living in the very first secular society in human history. So you hear me talk a lot about the difference between Christianity and every other major belief system, but if I can, let me just highlight their, uh, their commonalities just this once. One thing that Christianity <clears throat> has in common with every other major belief system uh, is this idea that there are two worlds. There's this life, and then there's the life after this. Every society in history has been built on this idea uh, that this life is a life of brokenness, pain, heartache, loss, disappointment. However, there is a life after this, and that life is the one of bliss and joy and healing and restoration and all that kind of stuff. And while every belief system differs about what exactly that life is or how exactly you have to live in order to get there, every uh, society was built on a belief system that held to this idea that there's something after this life. And so what that meant is that every society that's come before us knew that the purpose of life, the meaning of life, was not to be happy. That would have sounded ridiculous to ancient people. To them, the purpose of life was to be wise or brave or bold or courageous or self-sacrificing or strong or whatever it was. The purpose of life was to live your life according to the values of the next life because this life is fleeting, it's temporary, it does not last very long, whereas the life to come is eternal. Secularism, sort of in the face of all that, teaches that this life is all there is, which is a relatively new idea when you look at the history of mankind as a race. Secularism teaches that you got here from purely natural processes. There was no supernatural designer of your life, and so when you die, you become fertilizer, and that's the end of your story. And so I don't know if you've ever heard this before or thought about this before, but you are living in the first society in human history that's built on the idea that there's just one world, there's just one life. And so according to, and in line with that idea, according to secularism, if you are going to experience happiness or joy or peace or bliss, it has to be in this life because this life is all you have. So what secularism has done is it's created a society full of people who believe something that no society in human history has ever believed, which is that the meaning and purpose of life is to be happy. And that has had a twofold, I mean, it's had a, all kinds of fold impact on us, but it, there's been a, a primarily and markedly twofold effect that secularism has had on people that are marked and observable that study after study has shown. The first effect of secularism is it's created a society of people who are more unhappy than the people that came before them. There are countless surveys and studies and polls, both religious and non-religious, that have quantified this idea that people living in a secular society are more unhappy than the people who came before them, primarily because we're looking to this world to give us something that it cannot give us, happiness, peace, joy, bliss. 
But the second effect that secularism has had on our society, and this goes right along with the first one, is it's created a society of people who are more unprepared for trials than any society that's come before us. Because if you just think about it, secularism as a belief system offers nothing by the way of resources to somebody who is experiencing loss, heartache, disappointment, profound sickness, illness, if this life is all you have, then you're just playing pretend if you think there's anything to be had of value in the midst of suffering or death itself. Now, you might hear that and you say, okay, I agree with that about, you know, secularism in general, but I'm not a secular person. You know, I believe what the Bible says, that God will one day renew the material world and that those who believe in Christ will have a physical resurrection as Jesus Christ was resurrected and a new creation and all that stuff. That's great. I believe that too. However, as people living in a secular society, we would be foolish not to believe that we've been more influenced by the society we live in even than we realize. And so I say everything that I've set up to this point to simply make the point that we are more unprepared for our trials than the people that James originally wrote this letter to. <clears throat> and what James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 are designed to do is not only get us prepared for trials, and not only get us through our trials, but to get us to the point where our trials have no power over us except to produce joy in us. That's what these verses are about. And so I say all that to say that if, if you're tuning in this morning and you have too much joy in your life, you're trying to get rid of some of it, then I apologize for wasting your time on the front end. But if you're like me and you realize that you do not perfectly navigate the trials that God walks you through in your life, that far too often you allow what's happening outside of you or inside of you to derail you and steal your peace and steal your joy, and you don't want that. You want the hardship of life to paradoxically produce more buoyancy, more strength, more peace, more joy in you, then this teaching is for you because that's exactly what this passage is designed to do. And according to James, if we're going to become those kinds of people that walk through trials that way, there's three things that we need to understand about our trials. Number one, we need to understand the nature of them. Number two, we need to understand the potential of them. And number three, we need to understand the resource that's required to transform all of them. And those will serve as the three moves of our, um, our time together this morning. So first off, I want to look at what James has to say about the nature of trials, right? Right after his extremely brief um, introduction, here's what he says in verse 2, very famous verse. He says, consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials. I just want to pause there because there's actually uh, two things to draw from that verse about the nature of trials. One of them is, is, uh, has always been very obvious to me. I'm sure it'll be very obvious to you. But the other one is something that, despite being familiar with the message of James all my life, I have never seen until this week. Like, first, we'll do the obvious one. Uh, first and foremost, what James is saying in verse 2 is that trials are a guarantee in your life. Because he does not say, consider it joy if you experience them, but when you experience them. Now that idea, as simple as it sounds, that your life is going to be filled with trials, that's a very valuable thing to take the time to hear out loud on a Sunday morning because despite how much we know better, I think you can say amen to this if you know yourself, despite how much we know better, there is a, a, a belief that is deeply seated in every human heart that as long as I live a pretty good life, God will give me a pretty good life. And though, you know, I might not always have it my way all the time, 
God is going to spare me from the really, really bad things that I hear or read about in my own life. And I'll just make this personal. I know what the book of Job says about all the things that Job, who was the most godly man in you know, his, his generation, went through. I know that story. I know logically, intellectually, that more than half the Psalms are what you would call Psalms of lament, Psalms born from this place of deep pain and heartache and frustration. I know that Jesus Christ, the only perfect human being to ever lived, was called a man of sorrows during his time here. And I know that history teaches us 11 of the 12 apostles who devoted their entire lives to Jesus in a way that I have not. I know that 11 of the 12 died horrific deaths for their faith, despite doing exactly what God called them to do with their lives. I know all of that with my mind, yet I cannot get away from this sense in my heart that as long as I live a good life, God will give me a pretty good life. And that idea, more than anything else, is what makes our trial so unbearable. Because when that idea is left unchecked and unchallenged and we carry that into a trial, then what happens is, is we start dealing with multi-layered grief and therefore multi-layered breakdown. Because when that idea is carried into a trial, what will happen is you'll find yourself not only grieving the actual trial that you're going through, but you'll be grieving the fact that you're dealing with any trial whatsoever. And you'll vacillate between either hating yourself, believing that you've done something to deserve this, or hating God because you feel like he hasn't kept up his end of the deal. And the human heart can't bear up under that for any length of time. The trials of life are hard enough in and of themselves, but if we carry this, this idea that we're not going to experience them into them, then it won't be very long until they upend us all together. And so that idea is the very first thing that James goes at here. He says, you and I will experience trials. Anything that hap can happen to a person can happen to a person who's completely devoted to Jesus Christ. Now that idea, I think it's helpful, but it's probably nothing that you haven't heard before. It's the second thing I want to point out that, that, for whatever reason, I have never seen here. The second thing James says regarding the nature of trials in verse 2 is that your trials and my trials will be various. That word means not only will you experience more than one trial in your life, but you'll experience more than one kind of trial in your life. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but not every trial is created equal. And I'm not saying that some are harder or some are easier, though of course that's true. What I'm saying is that according to the word of God, different trials are aimed at different parts of you. They deal with different parts of you. They test and reveal and refine different parts of you, and they actually find their origin in different parts of you. And so what James is doing in these first 18 verses, like I said, I had to memorize this in high school. I went to, yeah, I've been in private school my whole life. I'm, I'm, I've been familiar with this content my whole life, but I've never seen this before, that in these opening 18 verses, James is preparing us for at least, he, he actually mentions at least four different kinds of trials that you and I will experience in our trip around the sun that we call life. And I'm willing to bet that no matter where you're coming from this morning, you are right now presently dealing with one of those kinds of trials and maybe you didn't even know what it was you were dealing with until today. So before I move on from this, let's talk about four different kinds of trials that you and I will experience in this life. First off, James talks about a kind of trial that specifically tests your faith. See this in verses two and three. Consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So you see the parallel there. James is talking about a trial that is something that tests your faith. So there is a trial that is specifically designed 
to test your faith. This is a trial <clears throat> that God will walk you through that will reveal functionally what you've actually put your faith in. The implied statement there is that it is entirely possible for you and I to walk through this life believing that we've placed our faith in God when we haven't. Sobering statement. It, but this explains a lot. For instance, uh, a lot of people, you, you hear this story pretty commonly, a lot of people will, will, um, will talk about how at one point in their life, I believed in God. I was a person of faith. I went to church, I read my Bible, I prayed, but then they went through some period of a great deal of suffering, and then they walked away from all that. A lot of people, in hearing stories like that, they describe that as walking away from the faith. James would not describe it that way. According to these verses, James would not say that person walked away from the faith. He would say they walked through a trial that revealed what their faith was actually in and their faith was never in God to begin with. What the trial revealed is that God was a means to an end, but the thing that they actually had their faith in was what they were hoping God would give them. And, and they lost, not a relationship with God, but they lost the thing that they had functionally put their trust in, that they had functionally looked to as their sense of worth, their sense of meaning, the thing that was going to make them happy. And when they lost that, that's what their faith was in, so they walked out on God. A situation, a trial like that is a trial of faith because it reveals what your, what your faith is actually in. Secondly, James talks about here a kind of trial that tests not specifically your faith, but your wisdom. You see this in verse 5. It says, now, if any of you lacks wisdom... He should ask God who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it'll be given to him. Now, this verse, if you just read through these opening verses, verse 5 kind of feels like James just changed the subject without letting you know. It kind of seems like it's out of nowhere. You were talking about trials, and now you're talking about wisdom and not doubting and all that kind of stuff. But James has not changed the subject here. He's still talking about trials. The difference is he's talking about a, a trial that specifically tests your wisdom. It requires more wisdom than you currently have. So to understand this kind of trial, you have to understand what the Bible is, is talking about when it talks about wisdom. I remember a couple of years ago, I came across a German theologian named Gerhard von Rod, who summarized this, I think, in a really helpful way. He says that when the Bible is talking about wisdom, it's talking about competency regarding the complex realities of life. When the Bible talks about having wisdom, that's what it's talking about, competency regarding the complex realities of life. Here, here's why this is important. Probably 85% of, of your and my life, probably 85%, if not more, we're going to be faced with situations that do not have a Bible verse that we can point to and say, thou shalt do this and not that. Certainly, there are going to be situations in life that are that clear cut, but the vast majority of time, we're presented in a situation in life that does not have a very obvious morally right and morally wrong answer. It just has a wise and a whole bunch of really unwise answers. And biblically speaking, a person of wisdom is a person who understands how the world works by God's design, and so they're able to skillfully navigate those situations in life in which the moral rules do not directly and obviously apply. That's why wisdom's necessary. And so a trial that tests your wisdom, according to James, this is talking about a situation in life that exceeds your present understanding of how the world works. Basically, it confounds the amount of wisdom that you have right now. It's a very disorienting thing, and it will either break you or it will cause you to expand your horizons and recalibrate and grow in wisdom. So here's one example of this. Um, maybe, without even realizing it, you were going through life, and you had this low-grade, deeply held, unchecked belief that as long as you do things the way that God says to do them to the best of your ability and you pray and you go to church and you observe religious practices and you go to him first, 
then, you know, God will establish your plans and everything's going to go basically the way that you want it to, and yet you find yourself right in the middle of the exact opposite of that. What's happened in your life is, is you have been presented with a situation in which you have very painfully and abruptly found out that the world does not work the way you thought it did, and what James would say is you are experiencing a test of your wisdom. So you have trials that aim at your faith, you have trials that aim at your wisdom, but thirdly, James talks about what I, I'm going to call the trials of extremes. I think you'll see why I called it that in a minute. In verses 9 and 10, it says, The brother of humble circumstances should boast in his exaltation, but the one who's rich should boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. Now, in these verses, James is talking about two different people and two different life situations that are basically on either end of the spectrum. The first person he refers to as the, the brother of humble circumstances. And that, that English phrase comes from just one singular Greek word James uses there. And the literal definition of the word he uses is not rising far from the ground. So this is a person that is experiencing profound adversity in their life. Maybe they had a financial reversal. Maybe they lost their career. Maybe they lost their, their health. Maybe they lost a relationship. They lost... Uh, their reputation, something that was very near and dear to them, and through whatever life situation, they have been brought very low to the point where they're barely rising from the ground. They can almost, they, they, they barely have the strength to pick themselves up. A person of profound adversity. The other person James talks about in verse 10 here is a person who's exactly on the opposite end of the spectrum. They're rich, or literally the word means abounding. This is a person who has everything going for them. This is a person who wakes up one day and realizes, you know, I've largely been spared a lot of the suffering and the hardship and the difficulty that so many people that I know haven't been spared for whatever reason. This is a person whose biggest problem is that they don't have a biggest problem. What's really interesting is in the context of this passage, James is saying that both of those situations in life are trials. That whether you're in the middle of extreme adversity or extreme prosperity, you are actually in the middle of a trial. And this, these words here, this is a very clear nod to a famous prayer in the book of Proverbs. This is one of my favorite prayers in the Bible. It's Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. It says, give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal, profaning the name of my God. That prayer was written by a man named Agur, who understood what James is saying here. He understood that, that both ends of the spectrum in life, both poverty and riches, both success and failure, both adversity and prosperity are equally dangerous for, for human beings for different reasons. Because the temptation, according to those verses, in extreme adversity, your, your temptation is to take matters into your own hands because you no longer believe that God can be trusted to care for you. Or in extreme prosperity, your great temptation is to forget how much you need them altogether. But either way, both of those situations are a trial. That's what James is saying here. Fourthly and lastly, you have the kind of trial that generally I think we refer to as a temptation, but James says in no uncertain terms, no, it's, a, it's actually a trial. It's laid out in verses 13 to 15. He says, no one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God, for God is not tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own, hang on to this word, evil desires. Verse 15, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. 
And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Now here, obviously, what James is talking about is being enticed by your own desires, but I'll just make this quick point. It's a shame that my version of the Bible translates this word, evil desires, that, that uh, each person's tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires because the word James uses there does not have a specifically evil connotation to it. The Greek word, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, the Greek word is epithumia, and what it literally means is just an over-desire. See, according to the Bible, of course, one of the things that gets mankind in general in a lot of trouble is that we desire bad things. Of course, that gets us in trouble. But if you survey the whole of Scripture, what you'll find is the vast majority of time, what we define as sin finds its origin not in the fact that we desire something bad, but that we desire something good in a bad way, in an inappropriate way, in an inordinate way. We over-desire. It's an epi-desire. That's what James is talking about here. And anything can fit into that category. Scripture has all kinds of things to say about how good it is to be in a relationship, how good it is to have a stable career, how good it is to work hard, how much of a blessing it is to have wealth, how good it is to have a good reputation, all those kinds of things. But what the Bible carefully warns us of over and over again is that those things in our life, those good things, cease to be a devil only when they cease to be our God. So what James is, is talking about here is a, is a trial that finds its origin not in the circumstances around you in your life, but that's a trial that finds its origin in the desires, the out-of-control desires or the wrong desires found within your own heart. So personally, just to kind of wrap this point up before we move on, I do not believe that James meant for this to be an exhaustive list of every kind of trial we'll experience in this life, but the more that I thought about this this week, the more I couldn't help but see how all-encompassing this is. You look at what James is talking about here. He warns us about, first off, trials that test our faith, that those deal with the heart. Trials that test our, our wisdom, those deal with the understanding. He talks about trials that find their origin outside of us in life circumstances, and then trials that find their origin inside of us in the desires in our own heart. And I do think it's safe to say that pretty much every difficulty we, we experience in life is going to fit into one of those four categories. So the point is, and this is, this is what James is trying to get us to understand in just the second verse of this epistle, is that we should expect our lives to be filled with trials that will come in all shapes and sizes. And before I move on, let me just, this means something to me. I was thinking about it this morning. Maybe it'll mean something to you. I couldn't help but think about how much different my life would be if I just held on to that one idea tomorrow morning when I woke up. Instead of seeing life through the lens of what I can get out of it, you know, the happiness, the joy, the whatever it is that I think is going to make me happy, what James is doing here is he's calling us to see life through a lens of, of how you'll be tested. And if you and I would wake up tomorrow morning with this conscious reminder at the forefront of our minds that there will be a testing of me today, and it's, it's likely that God's going to walk me through things that either test my faith, they'll, they'll test my wisdom, It'll be trials outside of me or maybe trials that I'll go to war with inside of me. If we could just latch onto that one idea, that in and of itself would create just a real resiliency in us. It's not a very comforting idea left to its own, but it's very helpful. The comforting idea is found in what James says next. So, so what I want to kind of build off of that with um, is looking at the potential of trials. And let me go back to verse 2 here, and we'll read verses 3 and 4 with it. Verse 2 said, "'Consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials,' Verses 3 and 4 tell us why it's not sociopathic to find joy in trials. Verses 3 and 4 says, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, 
But endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. What James is saying here is that if God never allowed trials in your in my life, what would happen is we would remain perpetually incomplete people. Because there are certain things that can only be brought into our lives through the presence of a trial. And this passage is littered with things that fit into that category. According to James here, a trial can bring a number of things into your life in a way that only a trial can. Things like endurance, maturity, wholeness, wisdom, stability, the ability to be free uh, from being controlled by what happens to you. In verse 12, I think the probably most stunning statement of this passage, James tells the person who endures trial that they'll receive the crown of life from God. To be perfectly honest with you, I don't exactly know what that is, but it sounds pretty good. The, the point of this passage, though, the underlying assumption, maybe the most important underlying assumption of this entire opening passage is none of that happens by default. Trials do not automatically develop anybody. If they did, James would not have felt the need to write about this topic at all. There would be no need to, and you and I know that from lived experience. I'm willing to bet that everybody listening to this, you either know somebody or you see it in your own self, uh, an example of someone who went through great difficulty and, and, and came out of it bitter instead of better. Pardon the expression. I know that's kind of a cliche, but it's true. There's a lot of people that go through life, they experience great loss, great difficulty, great hardship, and it doesn't refine them. It makes them smaller, more self-centered, more self-pitying, more callous. They're incapable of opening themselves up to people. They're incapable of forming deep and meaningful relationships. They're a shell of who they used to be. So the question is, how do you and I make sure that that doesn't happen to us? That's really what the purpose of these opening verses are. And the answer is, the answer is the resources that James points us to in the final three verses of this passage. And again, I know I said this on the front end, but this is something else that, that in, despite all my years of being somewhat familiar with the content of the book of James, I've never seen these last three verses like I, like I did this week. Let me read verses 16 through 18 to you. It says, Do not be deceived, my dearly loved brothers. Every generous act in every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. With him, there is no variation or shadow cast by turning. By his own choice, he gave us a new birth by the message of truth so that we would be the first fruits of his creatures. Let me ask the question. Does it not seem strange to you that immediately after talking about trials for 15 verses, James has what I just read to you. For, for 15 verses, it's all about trials. Consider it joy if you're in a trial. Let your trials grow you. If you, you know, ask for wisdom if you're experiencing trials. Recognize that your situation in life is a trial. The desires in your heart, those are trials. If you endure those trials, you're going to get this crown of life from God. Then at the end of all of that, seemingly out of nowhere, James con concludes this section by saying, by the way, don't be deceived. Perfect gifts are from God, and he gave us new birth. I, even commentaries I was reading this week pointed out that it's not abundantly, immediately clear what these final three verses have to do with the 15 verses that came before it. And after this, James starts a completely new subject. So this is his conclusion to this opening section about trials. And if I can just zoom out and, and, and hopefully paint a picture of this, here's what's happening here. That, that immediately after talking about our trials, commanding us to have joy in them, 
and inviting us to let those trials grow us, James says what he says in these three verses because what he's giving us in these three verses is the key to transforming every, every trial that we go through and ensuring that we come out of it more like Jesus. So at the risk of overstating my point here, I just want to make this clear before I get into it. If you don't follow me here with what we end with in these three verses, then this teaching up to this point has been a complete waste of your and my time. What James is telling us in these final three verses is the key to making sure that your and my trials are not wasted. Let me break this into two parts. Let's look at first just verses 16 and 17. It says, don't be deceived, my dearly loved brothers. Every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. With him, there is no variation or shadow cast by turning. Now, depending on what version of the Bible you're reading this in, these two things that James talks about here, every generous act and every perfect gift, it probably get translated differently. But what James is talking about with all these generous acts and perfect gifts, he's basically talking about everything that you're inclined to find beauty in in this life, everything that's great about this life, everything that brings you joy in this life. And what James is saying in verse 17 is behind everything in this life that you find beautiful, behind everything in this life that gives your life meaning, behind, listen, everything in life that you've ever experienced or ever will experience that has brought you any level of joy, James is saying behind that is a God that made you that you were made to know. And if you think his acts are great and you think his gifts are great, James would say, just know that the most perfect gift given to you in this life does nothing more than barely speak a faint whisper of how great the giver of that gift actually is. That everything we experience in this life, those, those momentary sort of almost transcendent experiences that move you to tears, that almost get you in touch with the divine, James is saying the most beautiful, most meaningful, most moving parts of your life are a shadow. This God, he's the substance. All of these other things, they might reflect the light, but this God that you're made to know is the source of that light. And that, more than anything else, James says, the key to handling the trials of life is holding on to that truth. That he's the source of everything that brings you any amount of joy down here. Let's ask the question, what does that have to do with walking through a trial? What does seeing God as the author and the source of joy in this life have anything to do with the trial it makes perfect sense to me this is such a tight-knit argument. Think about, think about it this way. Regardless of what you're walking through this morning, and I'm sure everybody has a trial that's showing up in some way, it's testing you in some way, it's, it's in your life to some degree right now. What every single trial that we experience in this life all have in common is trials have the ability to take a good gift away from us. That's what makes a trial a trial. It takes something good from us. Trials can take away a job, they can take away your health, they can take away your wealth, they can take away your reputation, they can take away your comfort, your stability, your control, they can even take away somebody that you love. But the one thing that no trial will ever have the ability to do is take away the one who was the author of that gift in the first place. And so what James is saying here is that when we make God the father of lights, the giver of all those gifts, the source and the origin of all joy, when we make that God our highest joy, 
then what happens when we do that and as we do that is trials lose their ability to derail us and upend us. And it's actually better than that, that when we make God our highest joy, trials that would have otherwise upended us now have no power over us except to produce more and more joy in us. But what it all boils down to, this is the point of verse 17, what it all boils down to, it's, it's about treasuring God above all else. The question is, how do we do that? And the answer is, we can't. So see you next week, I guess. <laughs> you notice in verse 16, before Paul or, or James talks about this, this almost feels like a throwaway statement until you understand why it's here. Obviously, I believe there's no throwaway statements in the inspired word of God. But verse 16, don't be deceived, my dearly beloved brothers. You know, I've read that my whole life and thought, well, that's a good idea, you know, not to be deceived. Why does James tell us not to be deceived before he invites us to consider that God is the origin and the source of everything that's ever brought us any kind of hope or joy in this life? Because we're all deceived, and we've been deceived since Genesis chapter 3. The fatal flaw of mankind, since sin entered the world and we walked out on God, and we've all walked out on God following lockstep with Adam and Eve, the fatal flaw of mankind, the greatest sin of mankind, is that we have given our hearts to the gifts, and we forgot about the author of those gifts. We have worshipped and served the creation and forgotten all about the creator, and that, more than anything else, has been the ultimate source of the pain that mankind has been causing itself for however long we've been here. And so what James is talking about here is the answer to that, but we can't just decide to change. I can stand on a stage all day and say, love God more, church, see in seven days. Make God your highest joy more than you did last week. It, it, it does, if, if it was that easy, who wouldn't have pushed that button before? Who wouldn't have flipped that switch before? James knew that. But this right here is where every belief system other than Christianity leaves you. with something that you need to do that if you think about it for any length of time, you realize you can't do. Only Christianity goes one step further than that. And instead of leaving you with something that you have to do, leaves you with what God has done for you that enables you and empowers you to do what he has called you to do. And it's found in verse 18, where James concludes this whole section by saying, by his own choice, that's God, the father of lights, the origin and the source of anything that's ever brought you joy, by his own choice, he gave us a new birth by the message of truth so that we would be the first fruits of his creatures. Listen, I, I, you've heard me speak a lot against formulas and techniques. I'm very suspicious of all that stuff. If I can just walk back that and say something that might surprise you. If there is such a thing as a formula for falling more in love with God all throughout your life, it is found in James chapter 1, verse 18. What James is telling us is three things God has done for us that we need to drive into our hearts all throughout our life if we want to love God more and hide more of our joy in him all throughout our lives. It boils down to understanding and understanding more deeply three things. Number one, God chose you. He says, by his own choice. Number two, he gives you a new birth. He gave us a new birth. He made you new. And number three, he's done this at the infinite cost of his own son. James says he's done this by the message of truth, literally the gospel, which is the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the son of God, and you're in my place. And so if you and I want to love God more from this day until our last day, if you and I want to make God our highest joy so that the trials of this life that we will encounter do nothing but produce more joy in us, James would say there's three things that you need to drive into your heart 
all throughout your days, as long as God gives you breath. Number one, and I'll just make this personal for you. James would say you need to remind yourself, number one, that God chose you. That you did not make yourself appealing or attractive to him. That his love, finds, his love for you finds its origin in him. It does not require you to be beautiful. It's a love freely given that makes you beautiful and depends not on what's in your heart but on what is in God's heart. And maybe somebody's listening to this right now and you haven't made the decision to give your life to Jesus and you're wondering, well, did God choose me? And I have really good news. If you have any interest in a relationship with God whatsoever, that is the greatest evidence that God is already at work in your life. The first thing James would say you have to remind yourself of is God chose you. Secondly, that God made you new. He says God through Christ makes you a first fruit of his creation. That means the moment you give your life to Jesus Christ, the divine being of God enters into your life and a healing begins in you that when it's complete will free you completely, entirely, and eternally from the horrible, corrupting power of sin until you are one day made new in a creation that is made new. And thirdly, God has done this through Jesus at the infinite cost of his own son. As Paul said in in, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 32, that he who did not spare his own son but freely gave him for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. If you and I want to love God more and make him our highest joy more and more and more throughout our lives, it boils down in every situation in life. When you're presented with something, and I'm sure some of you are right now, that has you wondering, how could a loving God let this happen to me? Why do I still feel like this if he's really there? Why do the things that have happened to me affect me so profoundly? Why did he let that happen in the first place? How could he possibly take something this bad and turn it out for good? I don't know, but we don't need to know. All we need to do is remind ourselves, even here in the midst of the trial, these three things, no matter what else, three things about you in Jesus will always be true. He chose you, he made you new, he's done it through Jesus. And it makes perfect sense to me that God would give us a message like this through James. I want want to close today just telling you a little bit about what I've, I've come to realize about James. He has such an interesting life story, and maybe it'll really speak to some people here today. The James who wrote this letter, there's a number of Jameses that are mentioned in the New Testament, but the James that wrote this letter is James, the actual brother of Jesus Christ. And we know that James uh, was not always sure about who Jesus was. In other words, he really took his time. He was, he was skeptical uh, he was filled with doubts, and he was not ready to check his brain at the door to follow Jesus. And so in, in John chapter 7, verse 5, we're told that Jesus' brothers, including James, did not believe Jesus' claims to divinity. James did not always believe that Jesus was God. He disrespected him. He dishonored him. He publicly ridiculed him. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're told something really, I think, amazing. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to hundreds, maybe thousands of people. And the way that Jesus, his post-resurrection appearances almost always were to groups. Almost always, when Jesus appeared to people after his death, it was to large groups of people. But what we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, is that James, the brother of Jesus, was one of the very few people that had the honor of a one-on-one meeting with the resurrected Messiah. And I was telling the 9 a.m., oh, to be a fly on the wall of that conversation. We don't have any idea what Jesus said to him or what that was like, but what we do know know is that it changed James' life forever. 
because he went on not just to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but to be one of the pillars, one of the most important leaders in the early church when Christianity was taking its first steps and getting off the ground. What we also know is that James was not just uh, a leader for, for the church in his life, but also in his death. Because in A.D. 62, enemies of the gospel took James to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. And they commanded James to tell people to stop turning to Jesus, to stop worshiping Jesus, to stop proclaiming Jesus as Lord. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense that they would demand that James do this. To me, it was wisdom on their part. Not only because James was a leader in the church, but because James was the brother of Jesus Christ. You just think about this logically. If anyone could have told people what Jesus was really like, who better to do that than James? If anybody from a position of authority could have said, listen, you guys are wrong about Jesus, I'll tell you who he really was behind closed doors, it could have been James, the brother of Jesus Christ, and yet, I read you the introduction, James announced the lordship of his own brother. To me, this is one of the greatest apologetics for the truth of Christianity. Can I just invite you to consider, what would you have to do to convince your siblings that you were God? I'm confident of this. If I ever somehow convince even a single human being to worship me, my brother will set that record straight in a hurry. And yet James, the brother, it just gives you an idea of how beautiful Jesus must have been, of what it must have been like to see perfection in human form that James was willing to worship his own brother. So they pulled James to the top of the temple. They commanded him, tell people to stop turning to Jesus. James refused And so they threw him from the pinnacle of the temple to the ground. And while the fall broke James' body, it did not kill him. And in his final breaths, with all the strength he had, James twisted his broken body from the ground. He brought himself to his knees, and he did exactly the same thing that he saw his brother do when his brother died. He prayed for the forgiveness of his murderers. And they stoned him. And they beat him over the head with a fuller's bat until he stood before his brother, Jesus Christ, in glory. And the question that that raises for the people back then, it's the same question that it raises for me today. How do you explain somebody that walks through a trial that well? How do you explain somebody that's able to go through that kind of suffering, that kind of injustice, having their very life stolen from them with a joy that translates to a love for their enemies, literally still looking out for the people around them in their moment of greatest need, where does that come from? The answer is real simple. It's that James believed the words that the Holy Spirit of God inspired him to write in James chapter 1, verse 18. James knew that no matter what God the Father saw fit to lead him through, three things were always true about him. Number one, God chose him. Number two, God made him new. And number three, he did it all through Jesus. And what James, the author of this epistle, showed us in his life and in his death is that when that truth sinks deeply into a human heart, what happens is your trials have only the power to produce more joy in you. Why, you ask? James would say, that's just how faith works. So I'm going to call the worship team up today. We're going to end reminding ourselves of what James said is paramount in our lives, what God has done for us in Jesus by celebrating communion. You know, I I said this before, but I'm convinced that one thing we all have in common in this room and online this morning is that every single one of us is walking through a trial. Maybe your trial is aiming at your faith. 
God is showing you what you functionally put your trust in. Maybe your trial is aiming at your wisdom. It's challenging how you thought this world was supposed to work. Maybe your trial finds its origin outside of you, in your circumstances, in your situation. Maybe your trial is within you, the desires of your own heart that you wish would change but still haven't. The point is, whatever your trial is, whatever degree it is, what James would say to us today is that if you and I are going to walk through those trials in a way that produces more and not less joy, then what we must do is right here and right now decide to make God our highest joy. And the way that we do that is by remembering what he has done for us by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. Let's take communion.